I'm Elaine. I'm Dan. And this is Sublime True Crime. Which is one that you've researched. It is indeed. We're going back to the 70s for this case. The era of Margaret Thatcher being elected the first UK female Prime Minister and the launch of the Sony Walkman. The news was full of Three Mile Island's nuclear accident following a fire at the reactor. Trivial Pursuit's general knowledge game was launched and China's one-child policy came into force. I thought Trivial Pursuit was a lot older than that. No. Things you learn. 70s. Every day's a school day. The UK's interest rate was running at a whopping 12.5%, but the average house price was only 13650 and it's okay, the music in the charts was great. The Bee Gees, Gloria Gaynor, Blondie and Donna Summer had everyone dancing. Also out dancing on the night of the 4th of December 1979 was Teresa Elena de Simone. She'd finished her shift at the Tom Tackle pub on the commercial road in Southampton at 11pm and then driven the short distance to Friday's discotheque in London Road with her friend Jenny Savage. Ah, discotheque. So 70s. (laughs) She was there to celebrate a friend's birthday, but she and Jenny stayed together all night. Both women drank only soft drinks while there, and they left together around 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning on the 5th of December. That was a real whistle-stop tour of a nightclub, wasn't it? It really was. She finished work at 11 and she was heading home at 12.30. Mind you, you're drinking soft drinks. We've all had those nights. You turn up, everyone else is pissed. True. You go, do you know what? I'm going to I'll just have a couple of drinks. Show my face. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) show my face and get out. Jenny drove Teresa back to the Tom Tackle pub, where they'd left her car parked in the rear-covered parking area. Jenny recalled sitting in her car, chatting with Teresa for a while, prior to getting out and going to her own car. At this point, Jenny reversed out the car park and drove away. Teresa was 22 years old, living at home with her mother, Mary Sedotta, and stepfather, Michael. She was working two jobs in Southampton. Not surprised with those interest rates. True. A full-time clerk for the Southern Gas Board during the day and a barmaid two evenings a week. Teresa had started to work the two shifts each week in the evening at the Tom Tackle pub, which is now the Encore public house, partly to widen her social circle and partly to help her finances. She had bought Ford Escort just three months previously. Mary Sadotti, Teresa's mum, was rather concerned to note that Teresa had not returned home the next morning. She spoke to her husband and he drove to the pub where he saw her car still parked and presumably he assumed that she'd left her car there after a few drinks and gone home with a friend as he did not investigate further. Anthony Pocock was the landlord at the Tom Tackle and just after 10am he was expecting a delivery to the rear of the premises so he decided to try to move Teresa's car out of the way and he also must have assumed that she'd left it there overnight deliberately. But inside the car he discovered the half-naked body of Teresa on the back seat. She was lying on her back, naked from the waist down, with her left breast also exposed. The landlord immediately called the police. The pathologist was on scene by 11.45 and his report noted that the time of death was between 1 and 2am. Detective Superintendent John Porter said at the time, quote, It is 99% certain that the girl was murdered, attacked, chatted to or met by her killer in a matter of seconds after Jenny Savage left her. He could have been waiting and seeing Jenny leave. It's possible he was actually sitting in Teresa's car, as we found the near side, passenger, door, unlocked, end quote. Teresa had been raped and then strangled. 
the cause of death was found to be, quote, long, slow strangulation, end quote, due to the presence of white frothy mucus in Teresa's mouth. The means of strangulation was thought to be using her necklace, a gold chain with a crucifix. There were, quote, a series of multiple roughly horizontal linear bruised abrasions on the front of her neck, which matched the description of the gold chain and crucifix, which the deceased had been said to be wearing that evening. End quote. The chain was not present with the body and has never been found. The pathologist's report stated that semen was found in the victim's vaginal canal and had been deposited no more than three or four hours before her death. As Teresa had been in work at the bar and then out with friends all evening, the semen could only have come from her attacker. Examination also showed bruising which demonstrated that the intercourse was non-consensual. Swabs were taken from the body and forensic analysis at the time showed that the semen was from a male, surprise, <laughs> with either A or AB blood type. Swabs were also taken from Teresa's car and clothing. Can we just go back for a second? I just want to confirm that the semen they found was from a male. It was from a male, apparently. Right. Okay, it's a good job that someone said that, otherwise um, we'd never have known. Well, I'm very glad that they felt that they needed to clarify it in the article that I was reading. That's why I couldn't resist putting it in. It was like, semen from a male. Really? <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Items were missing from Teresa's person and car, such as her car keys, watch and jewellery. Personal belongings like her handbag and diary were found in various locations nearby. Detective Superintendent John Porter of Southampton CID headed the investigation into Teresa's case. Over the course of the 12 months following the murder, police interviewed 30,000 people, took statements from 2,500 people and traced around 500 people from that area that night. At one point, the list of suspects contained the details of 300 men. It's just mind-blowing amount of people oh, to really is, deal isn't it? with, In a year it? as well. While investigating the murder, police also received two anonymous letters with a Southampton postmark dated 12th and 27th of December, giving information about the killer's location. The writer was never found. The following year, in September 1980, two anonymous telephone calls were made to police from a man claiming that he had murdered Teresa. Porter released a statement to the Southern Daily Echo at the time in which he said, quote, The calls came from a man who said that he had committed the murder. He gave the impression that he was under severe strain and was asking for help and advice. From the nature of his conversation, we think there is a possibility that the calls could be genuine. Now, let's look at someone else in Southampton at the same time. Sean Hodgson, originally from Tower Law in County Durham, was no stranger to the police. He was placed in a borstal at the age of 11. I suppose we should stop here and say what a borstal is. How did you just describe it? It's like a sort of care home for naughty boys. A care, <laughs> a care home for naughty boys. It's like a young offenders unit where they try and rehabilitate people and it's generally for under 18s from memory. I think so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I say naughty boys. I'm sure naughty girls were sent there as well to some extent. You've <laughs> <laughs> been a naughty boy to Borstal. <laughs> Sean had multiple convictions for dishonesty and deception, motor vehicle offences, possession of an unlawful weapon, and one conviction for unlawful sexual intercourse. What's unlawful sexual intercourse? Well, I had to Google this because what's the difference between unlawful intercourse and assault? Well, unlawful sexual intercourse covers things such as sex with a minor, sex with someone not deemed mentally competent for intercourse, sex with someone you have drugged for the purpose of having sex with them, etc. Fair enough. Sean also had a history of self-harm and had been admitted to a clinic in 1978 after overdosing several times. 
During his time in the clinic, he was assessed as having a, quote, severe personality disorder, end quote, and also being a compulsive liar. Basically, a very troubled soul with a long list of mostly minor brushes with the law. Sean was arrested by police on the 6th of December 1979 for an offence of theft from a vehicle elsewhere in Southampton. He was charged in relation to this theft on the 9th of December and was remanded in custody. Detectives did briefly investigate him in relation to Theresa's murder. He had a type A blood type and his whereabouts at the time of the murder could not be verified. It's worth stating at this point, this was before DNA forensics were available. So although police had swabs of the killer's semen, they couldn't generate a DNA profile. Blood type, witnesses and confessions were the way to get convictions. On 16th of May 1980, he pleaded guilty at Southampton to theft and was granted conditional bail awaiting sentence. He was arrested again in London on the 4th of June and charged with further offences. On the 14th of July the same year, he was sentenced to three years imprisonment. During this trial, he confessed to, quote, a large number of relatively minor offences, end quote. Funnily enough, since he was a compulsive liar, it was found that he could not have committed all of these offences as he had claimed, especially since some of them had occurred while he was in police custody. Well, duh. <laughs> then, on the 11th of December 1980, Sean Hodgson asked to see a priest, which was odd because he was a Protestant. Regardless, Father Frank Moran came to see him and he confessed to having nightmares about a woman he had killed the previous year in Southampton. He repeated his confession to a prison officer the next day and then wrote out a note stating, quote, After much deliberation and thought and confession with a priest here in Wandsworth, after all the trouble I have caused, not only to you, the police, but myself, the mental torture I have gone through, the family of the person concerned, I must my own sanity and the punishment I will receive for this horrible crime. I wish now that it was me that was dead and not the person I killed at the Tom Tackle pub. I did the murder. Why, I don't know. So all I can say is let justice be done. End quote. Further statements were made to the police containing details that had not been released to the general public. So the details were only known to the police investigating the crime and the killer. On the 25th and 27th of December, Sean Hodgson also confessed to two more killings. A man in Covent Garden, London, and a homosexual in North London around 78, 79. Don't know why he's reported as a homosexual. It's got no pertinence or anything. No, but the article was very clear. Fair enough. 70s reporting, I suppose. I suppose so. He was a homosexual. How dare he? Hodgson was tried for the murder of Teresa de Simone at Winchester Crown Court in 1982. He pled not guilty. The trial lasted for 15 days and Hodgson chose not to give evidence or submit to cross-examination. He instead gave an unsworn statement as follows. Quote, I would like to tell the members of the jury why I can't go in the witness box is because I'm a pathological liar. Secondly, I did not kill Teresa de Simone. Thirdly, every time I've been nicked by the police, which is on many occasions, I have made false confessions to crimes I have not committed. And this is the reason why I'm not going into the box. End quote. The defending QC, Robin Gray, pointed out to the jury that Hodgson was such a compulsive liar that he had confessed to 200 different crimes, including the two murders in London, which had not happened. The Crown Prosecution case stated, quote, Under the influence of drink, broke into the deceased car, intending to steal it, but then fell asleep on the back seat. 
When the deceased returned to her car, she put her handbag onto the back seat and brushed against him. He seized her by the back of her jumper, twisted it and strangled her. And when she was dead or dying, he raped her, removing her underwear and tights with such force that one leg of the tights was torn from the other. Thereafter, he made away from the scene after taking various items from the deceased. End quote. The judge, Mr Justice Sheldon, sentenced Hodgson to life and said, quote, It is a verdict with which I entirely agree. I have no doubt whatsoever that you were guilty of this appalling, horrible crime of killing that girl. End quote. Let me just stop you there, Justice Sheldon. Mm, not a bad judge, eh? Would you agree? Yeah, not too bad. Bish bash bosh. Job done. Crime solved. Murderer locked up for life. Close the file. Except... Sean Hodgson appealed his conviction, but was refused as he had confessed pre-trial and he had that special knowledge of secret details about the murder. He maintained his innocence for years. Sean spent many of his years in jail in the psychiatric wing of Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, which was originally built as a Category C prison. It was upgraded to a Category B prison and used to exclusively house sex offenders from the early 1990s. After approximately 14 years, any murderer sentenced to mandatory life imprisonment in the UK has their case reviewed by the parole board. However, if you continually claim to be innocent, that can be read as you continuing to be a risk to society. And that is excellent grounds to claim that person is ineligible for parole. I thought this was amazing. It made me think of the trial for being a witch. If you survived the ducking, uh, you were a witch. But if you drowned, you were probably innocent. Neither result does you any good, because obviously if you survived and were a witch, they'd kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. As soon as you were uh, accused of being a witch in the Middle Ages, you were pretty much dead. Yeah, absolutely. And that that reminds me of that as well. If you're claiming that you're innocent, then you're definitely guilty. Yeah. So what if you claim to be guilty? Well, you're guilty. Yeah. Bizarre, <laughs> isn't it? In 2008, Hodgson saw an advert in a magazine produced for prisoners called Inside Time, aptly enough. The advert was for a solicitor's company called Julian Young & Co., based in Mayfair, London, a firm specialising in appeals against conviction. Well, they know their target market, don't they? They really do. The company took on Hodgson's case. Raj Chand, a barrister at the firm, took on the case pro bono. He spent months trying to track down the swab samples and police records, all of which the FSS claimed had been destroyed at least a decade earlier. Chand, who now specialises in criminal defence work, including fraud, drugs, murder, people trafficking and miscarriages of justice has compared the work to finding a needle in a haystack. He said, quote, The search was the most difficult thing I have encountered in my personal and professional life. It was like finding a needle in a haystack. I spent months chasing false leads and implacable bureaucracy, but I was not prepared to accept that, as instinct told me that the samples would be somewhere. I persevered because I had a gut feeling that something was wrong, end quote. His work paid off. An archive was discovered at an industrial estate in the Midlands. In this archive were the swabs taken from Teresa's body by the pathologist back in 1979. On the 30th of January 2009, so almost 30 years later, <clears throat> it was confirmed that Sean Hodgson was not a match to the DNA taken from the semen samples in Teresa's vagina and anus. It took until the 18th of March 2009 for the wheels of justice to turn and for Sean Hodgson to be released after 27 years in prison. Unbelievable. It's horrifying. Lord Judge, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, stated, quote, The decision leaves some important unanswered questions. 
Perhaps the most important is that we do not know who raped and killed the dead girl. Nice of him to use her name. He continued, We can but hope for the sake of the appellant and the family of the murdered girl that her killer may yet be identified and brought to justice. But for now, all we can do is to quash the conviction. It is accordingly quashed. The appellant will be discharged. There will be no new trial. Sean Hodgson was initially paid £46 upon his release from prison. Whoa, 46 quid? Yes, a whole 46 quid. Wow. I know. And he also had no emotional support while heading into society again after all that time behind bars. And interestingly enough, if he had served his full sentence and then been released, he would have had counselling. But because he was released early... He didn't get anything. He got nothing. That's ridiculous. I know. And £46 is the the amount that all prisoners get on their release these yes. days. Well, yeah, at that stage. I don't know if it's gone up at all, but then. Um, he did later receive a compensation payout for wrongful imprisonment. The money was protected in a fund to shield him from gold diggers. His identity had also been stolen while he was in prison. <laughs> That's your fucking luck. I know, which gave him issues accessing housing and insurance. He suffered from depression and schizophrenia following his time in jail. His brushes with the law were not quite over, though. He was returned to prison in 2010 after allegations of rape and sexual assault of a 22-year-old woman in Bishop Auckland. She had learning disabilities and was in a care home at the time. So that was just a year after he was released? Yes. Silly boy. Sean died from emphysema on the 27th of October 2012, just three years after his release. So who raped and murdered Teresa de Simone if it wasn't the man who had been in jail for 27 years? Thanks to Rash Chan's persistent search, the swabs taken at the time of the murder were readily available, and with the leaps made in DNA forensics during Sean's incarceration, there was a new swathe of data available. Detectives had swabbed 69 people for their DNA by May 2009. Their focus was on people who were spoken to in the initial inquiry. From the swabs they took, they were able to rule out 52 of those suspects very quickly. On the 25th of March 2009, DCI Phil McTavish, the head of the reopened investigation, said, quote, A number of key witnesses have already been located, interviewed and are assisting the investigation. All persons screened to date have been eliminated against the DNA profile. We will screen as many people as we consider necessary. End quote. Police narrowed down their investigations and took a particular interest in a man that committed suicide some 20 years previously. Jeff Lace was at work when he received a call from police telling him that he could be an important witness to a historic crime. Cocky, imagine getting that call. I know. Jeff said, quote, When they said it was to do with David, my response was that he had not committed suicide, that he'd been killed. When they told me that my brother had confessed to the murder, I nearly collapsed. I told them that I'd do anything I could to help them. They took DNA from all of us, and that is how they tracked him. Identified from a partial match on the national database, police felt fairly sure that they had their man in David Lace. They used familial DNA from the siblings of the deceased suspect to help confirm their suspicions. On the 12th of August 2009, the body of David Lace was exhumed at Kingston Cemetery in Portsmouth in order to exactly compare DNA from his body with the DNA from the semen found back in 1979. So who was David Lace? Born and raised in Portsmouth, David Andrew Williams was one of six siblings, four boys, two girls. All of the children were regularly beaten by their father, also called David Williams. When David was aged just four years, 
His father stabbed his mother, Esther, six times in the stomach, leading to David Sr. being sent to a psychiatric hospital in Southsea, never to be seen by the children again. Bloody good riddance by the sounds of it. I think so. Esther survived the attack, remarried, and all the children adopted the name of their new stepfather, Bill Lace. Bill was a retired chief petty officer in the Navy. In 1973, David and two of his brothers were sent to the British Seamen's Boys' Home in Brixham before returning to Portsmouth to complete their education. That's such a mouthful. I'm sorry. Really? <laughs> British Seamen's a mouthful, is it? <laughs> they gradually went their separate ways as they grew older. David was described as a slim lad, standing five foot five inches tall with ginger hair, freckles and pale skin. David Lace grew up into a petty criminal. His first conviction that we could find was for a burglary on the 14th of November 1977 when he was just 15. He then received the care order in 1978, lasting until he was 18, the snatch in a handbag, and in January 1980 he confessed to stealing cash and property from his care home lodgings in Portsmouth. This led to him being convicted of several burglaries in the Portsmouth area for which he served nine months of an 18 month sentence. Then in June 1984, he entered Swanwick Post Office and used a knife to threaten the proprietor while removing money from the cash register. He was chased and caught nearby. For this, he was sentenced to five years and nine months. Upon his release in July 1987 from Dartmoor Prison for the post office robbery, he moved to lodgings in Brixham, Devon, where he took work on fishing boats. In the autumn of 1988, he made contact with his family members who were living in Portsmouth still. Then in December 1988, around the anniversary date of the murder, he was noted by friends to have become depressed. He made various remarks about how he had done bad things and couldn't cope. Then he quit his job, gave away all his belongings and said goodbye to friends. He was last seen by friends on the 7th or 8th of December 1988. That really rings alarm bells. Can you imagine if you had a friend that did all of that, gave away all their possessions? Yeah, I think you'd be really worrying about them at that stage, wouldn't you? You really would. At 4pm on Friday the 9th of December, his landlord checked David's room and found him dead in his bed. He'd attempted to slit his wrists, he'd taken painkillers and had placed a plastic bag over his head. He died of asphyxiation. David's death was recorded as suicide, although no note was found. He was buried in Kingston Cemetery in Portsmouth on the 29th of December 1988. I'm not surprised it was recorded as suicide given that he'd been clearly depressed and yeah. given his possessions away and quit his job. Has all the red flags, doesn't it? I wonder why his brother thought it was... Because he said he was a suicide, he didn't he? He felt it... Well, his brother felt there had been foul play. Oh. Okay. Mm. But let's go back to the 17th of September, 1983. A young man called David Lace was in police custody for suspected burglary. While he was there, he admitted to stealing a rucksack in cash from a care home in Portsmouth in December 1979, where he'd been living at the time. After that theft, he claimed to have walked to Southampton. David said that he was at the back of the Tom Tackle pub when Jenny Savage pulled into the car park and dropped Teresa at her Ford Escort. Teresa had got into her car and the 17-year-old David had approached, knocked on the window and asked at the time. He then confessed to forcing his way into the vehicle through the driver's side door and locking the doors so Teresa could not get out. He admitted to sexually assaulting her before strangling her using the passenger seatbelt. Finally, he took all of her jewellery and handbag, hid nearby for around 10 minutes, and then headed for the train station to catch a train back to Portsmouth. 
During his confession, he wrongly described the car and clothing, and so it was dismissed by police. Surely they should have taken into the account that it was dark at the time of the attack and looked a little closer at this confession. And also it was four years after the event. Mm. My memory's terrible. I couldn't tell you what colour a car was four years ago. <laughs> couldn't tell you what I wore last week. <laughs> yeah. Struggles to remember what we had for dinner an hour ago. Yes. On the 17th of September 2009, DCI McTavish, following a DNA test results which showed there was a one in a billion chance that David Lace was not the killer, stated, quote, the evidence overwhelmingly bears out Lacey's involvement in the rape and murder of Teresa de Simone, and we are not seeking anyone else in relation to the matter. End quote. The Crown Prosecutor for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight also stated, quote, The evidence would have been sufficient to prosecute David Lace if he were alive, with the offences of the rape and murder of Teresa de Simone. But this is in no sense a declaration that he was guilty of the offences. Had Mr Lace lived, our decision would merely have authorised the police to begin the legal process by charging him. Only after trial does a jury decide whether a person is guilty or not, on a higher standard of proof, beyond reasonable doubt. End quote. Mary Sadotti, Teresa's mother, said of the new evidence linking the murder to David Lace, quote, It does give closure, and it is a relief to get it all done. Hopefully we can all start to move on now. In a way, it's hard knowing that Lace is not here to answer or explain. But then at the same time, I think that what he did shows he must have had a conscience. He must have been very troubled. We will never know why he did it. John Lace, David's older brother, spoke to press just hours after a police press conference that confirmed David was the killer. John said, quote, He is a murderer and he is a monster. We cannot beat her out the bush. He is also my brother. I have got to feel for him. To finally take his own life because he couldn't live with what he had done shows that he was suffering. David's younger brother, Jeff, the one who had the police phone call out yep, the blue, um, then 45, added, quote, It might sound cold-hearted, but I think he took the coward's way out. He didn't face the music. Instead, he committed suicide because of what he'd done. End quote. Both brothers said their first thoughts were with Mary and Michael Sedotti, Teresa's parents. John Lace went on to say, quote, In time, I would like to sit opposite Teresa's parents, look them in the eye and say sorry. Teresa's parents have been dealing with this for 30 years. We have just started dealing with it. We have now got to live with the fact it was our brother that did it. Neither brother knew that David Lace had been sent to Dartmoor Prison for the post office robbery or about any of his other misdemeanours. He reappeared in Portsmouth in October 1988 when the ship he was working on docked there for repairs. He went to his mother's house where she fed him, gave him a bath and did some laundry for him. <laughs> Mothers are all the same, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you go. It was at this point that David confessed to the burglaries and post office robbery to his brothers. They said that they were shocked, but didn't make a big deal out of it, and asked him to come and stay with them for Christmas that year. But when John called David in December 1988 and asked if he was still going to come for Christmas, David refused, saying, quote, Because you don't know what I've done. End quote. John assumed his brother was referring to another burglary. So when the family were told that David had killed himself at his lodgings in Brixham, they thought that it was possible that he'd been the victim of foul play. They laid him to rest in Kingston Cemetery, opposite the family home on George Street, where Esther, his mother, could look out of the lounge window and see his grave. I'm not sure I'd want to do that. Uh, look out and see the it's a tough grave one. of my child. I suppose there's that comfort in knowing that they're close, but I'm not sure I would want to. 
David's sister, Andrina Foster, told press that her brother had confessed to her back in 1988 that he had murdered someone, but he didn't tell her who, and she didn't ask. What the fuck? I know. He confessed that he'd murdered someone, and she didn't think to follow up with a... What? No. Why? Who? When? Yeah. Sister, I've murdered somebody. Would you like another cup of tea? <laughs> Just don't get how that conversation goes. Are you still coming for Christmas? <laughs> it's bizarre. It, it really is. It's bizarre. The first she told police about this confession was when they contacted her, telling her that David was prime suspect in the murder of Teresa de Simone. She provided a DNA sample then, which helped police form the profile that proved that David was the killer. Andrina's half-brother, John Lace, was shocked that she had not pressed for further details, saying, quote, The exact details I don't know, and to be honest, I don't care, because something should have been done about it then, because I'm sure I would have done. I would have pushed him until he actually told me. No one makes comments like that and then just leaves it. That is not a normal conversation. He told my sister and she should have dealt with it in a different way. End uh, quote. That's a family that doesn't get on. I think I get that feeling all the way through, to be honest, it? that it does seem to be a bit of a dysfunctional family. From when Esther remarried and then the boys went off to the seaman's home yeah. uh, for boys and then came back and then all of a sudden... You know, age of, apart, don't well, they? age of 15, he was yeah. obviously off elsewhere. You know, David Lacey leading a life of petty crime. I can't imagine my child at 15 disappearing off the face of the earth and me just going, oh, right. Yeah, just being at ease with it. Yes. Andrina claims that she didn't ask any questions, partly because David was her brother and partly because she just didn't believe him. She stated, quote, How people react is up to them. They are not in my position and they have not gone through what I've gone through. Until they do, they've got no right to judge me. End quote. Sorry. I'm judging. Yeah, I'm judging. You're very wrong. Even if even if you say, well, it's it's my sibling. Yep. I would still want to know more information. Yep. And even if you say, oh, I don't believe them, I'd still want to know a bit more information about why they were randomly telling me that they'd killed somebody. Yeah. Like, what? Why? Why would you... Why are you saying that? Why would yeah. you say that? What, you thinking of mental health issues if you didn't believe them? I don't... Yeah, I'm sorry, Andrina. I just don't get it. Yeah. Consider yourself judged. Yeah. David's family seemed united in believing that David took his own life due to guilt at what he'd done to Teresa. A single positive thing came out of all of this. Operation Iceberg was set up by the CCRC, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, with the remit to use DNA evidence from pre-1990 rapes and murders to review cases. And that is the case of the Crucifix Killer. So, Dan, what did you think about that case? Because, obviously, that was one that I had chosen and researched. I thought it was really interesting. I thought the twist in it was interesting. And I think the police got to take a lot of blame, haven't they, for having someone locked up for 27 years who was innocent of the crime they locked him up for. Yes. Seems such a shame they didn't pay more attention to the fact that he was a serial liar who confessed to those 200 cases that he couldn't have done when they were looking at this case. Yes, that's it. I think they really need to... They need to take his uh, confessions with a larger pinch of salt Definitely. and actually get proof. I suppose it's difficult because they didn't have the benefit of DNA evidence yeah. back then. But if you've got somebody who's written confessions and then then pleads innocent suddenly at the trial, I suppose it's a difficult one for the police. But the other side of the coin, they had phone calls from the murderer, inverted commas, um, and they also had letters as well. from. So the, the, there was a whole background to why mm. they possibly had the wrong man. Yes, absolutely. What do you think about David Lace committing suicide? I, I think 
it, it does seem as though the guilt was laying heavy on him, the fact that it was that his suicide was around about the time of the murder. It was obviously building up to all of that, the anniversary of it. He was only 17 when he killed her. Yeah. Did he really understand? Well, I know he understood that he was killing her, but, you know, did it get out of hand? You wonder what had happened for a 17-year-old. You know, teenagers are not known for their impulse control. No. It seems such a shame that he didn't give himself up to police. Mm. Because I dare say, had he gone to a police station and gone... I did this. These are the details. Yes. They would have at least had to looked at it. You would have thought or... so. But then he was in jail and confessed to it. Yeah. Um, but I suppose at that point, though, um, they had Sean locked up. So in a way, maybe the police at that point would go, no, it's fine. I'll show our hands to that one. We've dealt, yeah. we've dealt with that one. I found it interesting as well, obviously, the fact that part of the reason why Sean Hodgson was jailed was because he had this secret knowledge. Yeah, that's true. Now, on that question... Yep. For for our listeners as well, is um, had a police officer disclosed the secret details of the case to Hodgson before or during his confessions? There are no audio records of interviews from the time, as they were not routine back then, and a lot of the original paperwork is lost or destroyed, so we'll never know. What do you think? I think he must have had some information from somewhere. It so. seems likely he was fed a bit of information. Especially if the police are trying to get a conviction. And they know that he's going to confess. How about if your brother or sister confessed a murder to you? What would you do? I would definitely be pressing for more, more information. Sorry, Andrina, but I would definitely be asking questions. Yeah. I'm, Who? Why? Yeah. <laughs> How? I'm pretty sure I would feel like I had to shop them in. And yes. that's horrible for, for family. Mm. But, you know, it's it's a difficult one. It's But, yeah, you would certainly not be going, oh, well, I didn't ask any questions. You'd be drilling them down again. What the fuck? Yes. I think as well, certainly now, that if something like that happened, people can be ruled out so easily now. Yeah. DNA evidence that you think, well, okay, they're confessing to it. I don't really believe them. But do you know what? It's not going to do them any harm if the police investigate and take a sample and they get eliminated from the inquiry. And if it was them, heaven forbid, then they really need help. Yeah. So that was the case of the crucifix killer. What are your thoughts? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.